following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Before I entered into the ministry a few years ago, um, we used to, uh, my family and I, we used to live in a home way out in uh, Huntley, just about 45 minutes from here. And um, uh, we'd also, we'd get a lot of questions about, you know, why did you guys choose to live so far away? I actually worked downtown, so I was taking a very long train ride every day. But we just loved um, being out in the peace and quiet of nature. And, uh, you know, this house actually was near my, my uh, wife's sister's home, and we just fell in love with the area. And, um, you know, the homes are a lot cheaper out there. And uh, our home was over two acres, and it sat on this hill, and we could see, you could just see for miles and miles. This is a picture uh, from our backyard here. And, you know, when we lived there, I used to take these long walks in my backyard, and it would just be amazing at just the things that I would see, uh, geese flying, you know, um, these giant blue herons would constantly be flying overhead. You could actually hear them from like hundreds of yards away. Their wings are so big, you could hear them flapping. We'd have hawks, deer, foxes, coyotes just running across our backyard. And I loved it because there's something about being out in nature that just makes me feel like I'm in tune with God. It's hard to explain. Um, I, I married a woman who also loves the outdoors, um, Praise God for that, because our favorite thing to do is actually is to just to go hiking. And so any chance that we can get to get away, uh, we often try to go find some really good hiking trails. And so for our five-year anniversary, uh, we made a trip out to Vancouver, and we hiked uh, this uh, huge piece of granite. It's kind of like El Capitan in uh, Yosemite called the Squamish Chief. It's on the left. And when you get up there, you just there's this incredible view of of uh, this body of water called Howe Sound behind us. And then the, the picture on our right is actually from our 10-year anniversary. Uh, we went to Maui, and we hiked this, um, uh, the Waihee Ridge Trail. If you, ever, if you ever find yourself out in Maui, highly recommend. It's a beautiful trail. It's got these incredible vistas of the Pacific Ocean, which you can see behind us there. And a couple years ago, we actually took a trip out to Zion National Park with the whole family. And uh, this is in Utah. And... Um, and we hiked the uh, Angel's Landing. And it was a little bit scary at some points, and it's like pretty narrow. You got to hold on to some chains. And, um, but it was so much fun. And, and I, you know, as I said, being in the beauty of God's creation just, it does something for my soul. And it's hard for me to, to put into words how and why it ministers to me until I started to dig into some of uh, the nature psalms. You know, these psalms that really speak of God and his creation. And, you know, these nature psalms in the Bible, um, some of which were written by David. And, uh, you know, I think David, David loved the nature, loved nature. He loved the outdoors. And when we follow his story, it's clear that he spent much of his life by himself outside, right? And it wasn't always by his choice, right? I mean, I, we learned as the youngest boy in a, in a very large family, he was relegated to watch over the family's herd of sheep. And apparently David spent so much time doing this that even his own father, Jesse, forgets about him, right? When the prophet Samuel comes to anoint one of his boys as the new king of Israel. 
So we know that David spent countless days uh, watching the sunrise and sunset over the horizon as he tended um, the sheep. And we also know he spent many days and nights in the Judean wilderness as a young man running from Saul and, and later even as an old king fleeing from his own son, Absalom. And in his lowest moments, in the solitude of his struggle, David longed for nothing more than to see God's face and to hear God's voice. And we know this because all throughout so many of his psalms, you hear that cry, right? This longing to hear God's voice and to see his face through so many of these psalms that he wrote. And I think this is the struggle for so many of us, isn't it? Now, how, how do we engage with a God who is invisible and inaudible? Right? How do you relate to a God that you cannot see or hear? And we often interpret God's silence as proof that he's either aloof or he's just absent. And we're left wondering, like, does he really even care? Is he even there? We struggle to believe in God, in a God that we cannot see or hear. But when we come to Psalm 19, we see that David's constant communion with creation gives him remarkable insight, not just into nature, but into the nature of God himself. C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's really high praise coming from a literary genius like C.S. Lewis. So this morning, I'm going to do something a bit different. Uh, Since this is a nature psalm, I'm going to read the text alongside a video uh, of nature and some music because I'm hoping it will give us a better sense of perhaps what David visualized when he wrote this psalm. Uh, Just so you know, this video was taken by uh, Henry Lee at Joshua Tree National Park and the ancient bristlecone pine forest, and it was actually taken during a meteor shower on some of the shots. And so if you could play the video, and I'll read our, our text for today. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, 
than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We, you know, we often struggle, I think, to believe in God or believe in a God that we cannot see and we cannot hear. But in Psalm 19, we learn that God is speaking to us right? constantly throughout, through our world and through his word. And David shows us that God is not silent with us, nor is he indifferent to us. He is, in fact, constantly calling out to us and pursuing us. And his voice can be heard in ways that we would never expect through his creation and through his commands. Verse 1 through 4, I want to read it again just so you can see the text here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. When the man after God's own heart, David, finds that his own heart is down, And in despair, he longs for nothing more than to hear the voice of God. And he simply looks up and he realizes there God is proclaiming, declaring, revealing, pursuing. David destroys the myth that God does not speak, he does speak. He's speaking to us all the time. No sound is heard from them, and yet a proclamation and a declaration are going forth. And what we learn is that God is speaking to us through his creation all the time. And what we learn is that just because we cannot hear God audibly does not mean that God is not speaking and that God is not here. He is speaking to us through his created order. And the Apostle Paul says God's voice through his creation is so far-reaching, so compelling, that all of mankind will be held accountable to their rejection of God because of it. Romans 1.20 says this, Paul writes, "For, For his, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they, or we, all of us are without excuse. 
This is what theologians call general revelation. He has revealed himself to all of mankind generally in, in this way. And through his creation, he is constantly revealing to us two things, his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, there's so much debate today about whether God actually exists, right? At least in the secular world. But what's interesting is when you look into the Bible, the Bible never even attempts to make a case for theism. It just assumes that all the necessary evidence is already embedded in creation. And all the Bible says is that only fools do not believe that God exists. Why? Because only a fool would assume to have enough absolute knowledge to absolutely refute the existence of an absolute. You follow the contradiction there? In order to believe there is no God, you would have to be all-knowing yourself, which would make you God, the very thing that you are trying to disprove. The truth is, it takes far more faith to believe that everything we see in the universe is simply the product of matter and energy and chance. If you just look around at the vast beauty and the diversity of creation against the backdrop of the universe, how in the world could this have come together by just some cosmic accident? There is a God. And he has revealed himself through his creation. And he is speaking to us through that creation. And he is saying, I am here. I am powerful. I am eternal. And he also reveals to us clues about his divine nature. You know, I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, paraphrases these verses in Psalm 19 and um, expounds on it in her children's book. Uh, by the way, whether you have kids or not, uh, you need to get this book and, and read it for yourself, whether you have children or not. Read it for your children if you have children. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones just has such a winsome way of retelling the story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. It's just so pure and so powerful. And in the opening pages of this book, she pulls from Psalm 19, and she writes this. She says, The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. And then she writes this. She says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us to know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too. And he wrote it in a book called the Bible. You know, David makes it very clear that through his creation, God is declaring his love and his care for us. How does God do this? You know, in verse 4, he takes one example from the heavens. He takes the sun 
in our solar system. And through that son, he reveals the relationship that God desires with us and his heart to bless us. In verse 4, it says, In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. And nothing is deprived of its warmth. You know, I believe C.S. Lewis taps into the same spirit of David when he says, when he wrote this, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think C.S. Lewis had his favorite psalm, Psalm 19, in mind here when he wrote that. Because what he's saying is everything in his life is now colored by his faith in God. And everywhere he goes, he now sees God. He can't unsee it. And David, who is pondering the heavens and the skies above, now hones in on the sun, and he cannot adequately express It's beauty, and so he turns to the language of poetry. And from this poetry, we see that God is not just eternal, and God is not just powerful. God is love. He is loving, and he is caring over his creation, over you and me, over all of us. You know, I find it interesting that of all the poetic devices at his disposal, David makes use of a simile. If you remember from high school English class, you know, a simile is a figure of speech that, that makes a comparison using like or as. And he says this, he's, the son which God has created is, is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Why does God inspire David to compare the son to a bridegroom arriving for his wedding? I think the first thing that God wants us to understand that is just as he designed the son for a purpose, he designed us for a purpose too. And that purpose is to be in a love relationship with him. And this is why he uses the most powerful symbol of love and commitment possible. He uses the marriage union, which God also created. Because the marriage union is a picture of the promise of an unconditional love that is bound by a covenant. And that is what he desires for us, to be in that love relationship with him. And David is not the only one who makes this connection. You know, other Old Testament prophets, they pick up on this same idea. Hosea 6, 3 says this, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him or know him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. And the prophet Malachi says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You know, God's people were instructed to trust him. To trust him with the same certainty by which the sun rises and gives life. They were to trust God. And through the Messiah, the Messiah will come to them in the same way and bring life and healing and human flourishing. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. 
You know, the next uh, simile that we are given of the sun is the sun is like a champion rejoicing to run his course. This is a little confounding to me. I hate running. <laughs> I know there's a number of us in the church who, who like to compete in, in uh, races, run half marathons and marathons, but there's nothing really, there's no rejoicing going on when I'm running a race. Right? <laughs> the first thing and the last thing I think is like, when can I be done? <laughs> but here we have a picture of a runner competing in a race on a pre-designed route. But what stands out here is that where there's normally anxiety, Instead, there's rejoicing. Why? Because he's a champion. He knows the outcome is secure. He knows victory is his. And this is why he can run as a champion with joy and with confidence. And I love the picture that David gives us here. As a creator God who not only created a purpose for the Son, but who created a pathway for the Son. And God in his love for us has given each of us a course to run. And he calls us to run it like a champion, to run it with joy, knowing it is God who has set our path and who has already given us victory. You know, it's not very clear what David really understood, what David could see at this point in redemptive history. This is about a thousand years before Christ even enters the picture. But we find that in that same way, God would also give his son, S-O-N, a course to run, which he ran with, as Hebrews says in 12.2, with joy set before him, enduring the cross. Why? He could do that because he trusted his father's heart. He trusted his father's will. He trusted his father's plan. David then tells us in verse 6, that the sun, it, it rises on one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other and nothing is deprived of its warmth. You know, these are such great words. Here is David in the ancient world, even without a PhD in astrophysics, David seems to understand the meticulous detail and the intentional care that God exercises, not just in creating the sun, but in the orbital circuits that, of our solar system, right? The sun's distance from the earth, our orbit around it, and, and any slight variation of which would prevent the flourishing of human life. And David follows this by saying something so brief and yet so beautiful. He says, nothing, nothing is deprived of the sun's warmth. It's what we call common grace. God demonstrates through his creation of the Son that he desires to bless all of mankind. And just as life flourishes under the Son, in the physical, real sense, God desires to bring flourishing into our lives as well. And this is becoming more and more apparent, you know, as modern science digs deeper and deeper into the mysteries of the universe. Scientists, astrophysicists are discovering that the universe is incredibly fine-tuned for life. And this is actually disorienting for a lot of scientists who, you know, claim that they do not believe in God because it's almost becoming impossible to not believe in God because you would have to believe not just in chance, but we'd have to believe in some infinitesimal stroke of luck that we are here by accident. That takes great faith. 
And I came across this video this week produced by a Christian apologist named William Lane Craig. He's, um, he's amazing if you can watch any of his videos. Um, but it illustrates this point so well. And so I just want to show you this video. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered, by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could and life couldn't exist. Or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe <coughs> to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting or Another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. I don't know if that ministered to you. It really ministered to me. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not nerding out on that stuff, but it's just I like the picture of everything kind of standing on itself. That kind of visually did it for me. But that's really what we're talking about here. You know, what do these verses in Psalm 19 tell us about the nature of God? They tell us that not only is he eternal and powerful enough to create the cosmos, but he's loving and he's kind enough to meticulously engineer 
all of it with such exacting details so that life would flourish. And if this is true of the universe, then certainly it is also true of me and my life. A God of order and design declares that he is a God with a plan and a purpose. Not just for the universe, not just for our solar system, but for each of us as his creation. And so this is the loving heart of God as we see in creation. Now we look at verse 7 and notice how David shifts gears here. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. To notice these words that are bolded here. Law, statutes, precepts, commands, fear, decrees. All of these terms were used in the Old Testament to describe the Mosaic Law. And yet what is a bit confusing is that David is so effusive in his praise about the law, even more so than creation. It seems like, what's going on here? How do you go from talking about the glory of the heavens and waxing poetic about the sun to suddenly now praising laws and commandments? It seems so out of place. David here is pivoting from the natural laws in the physical realm that we see in in the heavens and in the skies to now speaking of the moral laws in the spiritual realm. And creation gives all of mankind a general revelation of God, meaning nature tells us that he exists, that he is all-powerful, that he is a God of order and design. And from that, we can infer that he made us for a reason, and he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. But God's word goes further. It gives us a special revelation. And through it, we are able to more clearly understand the nature of God's love and the need for our redemption. And as I said last week, David... He didn't have the Bible like we have it, right? Genesis to Revelation. All he had was the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that is, that is what he's referencing here. But notice the way he talks about the laws of Moses. He talks about the laws if he's talking about a person. Perfect. Trustworthy. Right and radiant. Pure and firm. And he talks about the law not as a regulation, but as a relationship, right? He he says it refreshes his soul. It brings joy to his heart. It gives light to his eyes. It's like a friend who is more valuable than gold, more satisfying than honey. It's like he's just trying to think of the most valuable thing that he can think of, the most precious thing, the sweetest thing on earth. And, and this is what he, all he can grasp for. 
Who in their right mind talks about the law in this way, right? But what we see here is that David, the man after God's own heart, is seeing the heart of God, not just in his creation, but also in his commands. And this launches him into praise. And, uh, you know, I think becoming a parent has helped me to understand this whole idea better. Because, um, you know, my daughter, Selah, she, she turned 11 years old last week. And um, she's, like, officially preteen now, <laughs> two years away. And, you know, this past week, coincidentally, they had a, a, a unit they were teaching in her class. We got notice as parents of human and growth development, which is, I'm sure, you parents, you love getting that letter. They're gonna, it's, it's sex ed, okay? <laughs> it's like, oh, here it comes, you know? <laughs> And, you know, we've had the discussion. We've talked about the birds and the bees. We talked about puberty about a year ago. And, you know, um, she knows it's coming. We know it's coming. I'm dreading that day. <laughs> and yet, you know, as a part of that discussion, we talk about, you know, just setting rules. You know, I think um, she talks about, you know, wanting to get her ears pierced, wanting to get highlights in her hair wanting to wear certain clothes, which I, as a father, deem inappropriate, you know, and she wants all these things. She, you know, she hasn't talked about dating boys yet, but I told her, save that for college. Let's not even talk about that, <laughs> you know, and, and so I, there's all these rules I'm realizing I'm have to, I have to communicate to her, you know, because I want to protect her, and yet, you know, she's only 11 right now. She, she's not pushing back so much, but it's coming. I, I know it's coming, the heart of, the, of a rebellious child. And, and yet, you know, in the midst of all of what's coming, and, and I know, you know, all these physical changes and physiological changes, emotional changes, I, I kind of wanted to prepare her, you know. Um, I told her, I just sat her down a few days ago, and I just said, there's coming a day, I know you're not going to believe this, you're not going to like dad anymore. <laughs> you know, all these emotions are going to be raging in your body because your hormones are going to go crazy when you, when you hit puberty, and I just want you to remember something. I want you to remember that all these, these rules and all these things that we're talking about is because I love you. It's because I want to protect you. It's because I want you to have a good life and I want you to be blessed. And I feel like I need to tell her this constantly because I know there is coming a day when she won't believe it because in her heart she won't feel it. And she's going to chafe under all those rules. But I told her, I want you to trust me, to trust that I love you and that I'm wiser than you and I want what's best for you. And this took a long time for me to understand as a child, you know. Um, I often chafed at all the rules in my own home as a teenager growing up. And even as an adult, when I think about all the laws of God that I have to obey. But David understands what, you know, I struggle with. That when God says don't in his word, when he gives a command, he says don't. He's saying, don't hurt yourself, right? And this is coming from a heart of love that desires to bless and desires what is best for me. And so as you grow in life, as you have your own children, you begin to realize this, begin to see the heart of God, even in his rules, even in his laws, even in his commands. And you see that just like David, both God's creation and God's commands testify to God's infinite wisdom and God's loving care. Both were meticulously designed by him so that we would flourish, 
And this is why he can say of these laws, David can in verse 11, By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This means that God is not just all-powerful and all-wise. He is loving and kind, and this is why David can see more than just rules and regulations here. He sees relationship. He doesn't see just laws. He sees love. And just as the laws of physics were designed for the flourishing of human life, so too God's laws and God's word were designed by God for my own flourishing as well. This is the heart of God. And we're going to close at this last few verses, verses 12 through 14. This is David's response now to God's revelation. In the midst of his creation and his commands, he says this, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And he closes with these famous words. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In praising the laws of God, David recognizes the blessings that come with them. And yet here we find in verse 12, but. But who can discern their own errors? David is hopeful when he sees the wisdom of God's commands, but he's also humbled when he realizes that he cannot keep them. He needs help. He needs God's help. Have you noticed the pattern here yet in the Psalms of David? You know, whenever David encounters God through the honesty of his own heart and his own emotions, David always comes away with a deeper sense of his own sin, and a greater longing for God's redemption. And so notice the words that he uses here. He says, discern, discern for me my errors. Forgive me of my hidden faults. Keep me from my willful sins. Do you hear hear what he's saying? He's saying, reveal my heart to me. Redeem my heart. Protect my heart, O God. And he confesses sin he knows exists. But he also confesses sin that he's unable to see. Who can discern their own errors? David knows there are sins that even he doesn't see within himself. Who can forgive my hidden faults? But he's also aware of the sins that he is struggling with, and yet he feels powerless to overcome. And he says, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. David is confessing Sins that he knows that he cannot overcome, that he has tried to overcome in his own strength. And despite all the ugliness that he sees inside of him, he still has the faith to look upward and he see the beauty of God's glory. And in turning upward, he hears the voice of God and he sees the heart of God and he closes with these words. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. It's as if David is saying, as he looks up in the skies, I, I hear you. I've heard your voice, O oh God. I hear what you're saying. Now hear my voice. Hear my words and my meditations, and may they bless you as your voice has blessed me. 
This is the heart of David. This is the man after God's own heart. And, you know, I think over the last few weeks, that's, uh, I don't know if it's blessed you, it's, it's, it's really been a blessing for me just to dig into these psalms um, in ways that I never had before, to be honest. And to see the heart of God through the heart of David. Let's pray together.